Lord, we want to thank you for allowing us, Lord, the privilege of having your breathed out word. And Lord, we know that you have given it to us so that we can have a better understanding of who you are. And we can have a, a greater understanding of, of what it is that you desire from us. And so, Lord, I ask this morning that we would all be teachable, that we would place ourselves under your word and be taught by it and be challenged by it. I would ask that I, as your messenger, would simply be the mouthpiece for this text, that what I say would be a, an accurate reflection of your truth. And, Lord, that your gospel would be seen and, Lord, your Holy Spirit would have freedom in us today to mold us and to shape us to be like your son, Jesus Christ. We ask these things now in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So today, as we get into Mark chapter 14, we begin what is called the Passion Week. And the idea of passion means suffering. So from chapter 14, verse 1, to chapter 16, verse 8, which is where Mark actually ends, is the passion story. Now remember, Mark is not giving us a full account. What I mean by that, he's not giving us uh, unnecessary details. He's very, very succinct in what he has to say. He's very careful about the, the, the information he gives, and he's considering his audience, which is uh, the, the Roman audience, uh, the church that is there, and the suffering that they may be going through. But he wants to present Jesus as... Christ, the Son of God, as J.D. mentioned earlier. And so the passion is basically all about Jesus' arrest, his trial, his crucifixion, his burial, and then his resurrection. And surely this story that we're going to go through over the next few weeks is the fulfillment not only of the Old Testament, but it's also the fulfillment of what Jesus has been prophesying himself to the disciples and those around about what was going to happen to him. And here we are now seeing that prophecy, even within the gospel, unfold and take place. And as we go through the Passion story, of course, Jesus is the main theme. And he's the focal point of these three chapters. But there's also a secondary theme that's running through here that we need to pay attention to. That secondary theme is, is to consider those who know him intimately. And what I mean by that is the disciples in particular and how they respond to him. We see in today's text Mary's devotion. We're going to see Judas's betrayal. That's going to unfold for us over a few weeks. And then we're also going to see Peter's denial and ultimately the disciples' failure. Now, if you remember chapter 13... The challenge there was to stay awake, right? Be on your guard. Be alert. Be faithful. And what is it that we find the disciples doing during the Passion story? They're not staying awake. They still don't understand. And so it's a story unfolding before us, and it's a story that is recorded for the purpose of proclaiming Jesus Christ as the Son of God, not only to encourage the body of Christ, but also as a, an evangelistic tool. This was a gospel tract, so to speak, that was going out. So Mark is calling us to focus on Jesus, seeking to answer the questions who is Jesus? What has he come to do? How will I then respond when I have those questions answered? But he's also wanting us 
along with the disciples, to recognize our struggle with those same questions. Because we have to, you know, the disciples were, were trying to figure out, is Jesus just another revolutionary trying to get his 15 minutes of fame, so to speak? Is he the, the, the Messiah come to overthrow Rome and then to, to establish uh, Israel's kingdom again, which is what the common um, idea of the Messiah's return was all about? Or is he the Son of God, as revealed in Mark's gospel, who will suffer and die, just as he said? So as we enter this section, we want to, to look for Jesus as he fulfills his own words of prophecy. We want to pay attention to those who know him and how they respond to him. And we want to take note of those who show themselves to be opposed to him. So this is quite a, it's quite a story. It's quite a, a plot line. There's all sorts of things that are happening in this story. And some have said, this is the greatest story ever told. And we would say it is. And we get the privilege of going through it over the next few weeks. So, so get excited about this. This is, when we talk about what is the gospel, we can give the technical answers about what is the gospel. But there is the story of the gospel unfolding in the gospels here that will, that will allow us to be anchored through the truth of who Jesus Christ really is. Now, let's just consider the setting for a few moments. Mark, in giving us the, the setting, anchors the events with the following words. Look at verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, he's purposeful in giving us that information. The Passover was upon the people of Israel. It was a time of intense nationalistic feeling among the, the people because it, it called to remembrance their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. If you remember, God brought the plagues to the Egyptians. And the last plague was that God was going to send the angel and the firstborn of, 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 of all those that were there um, would be put to death, firstborn male. But God provided a solution for the Israelites they would have to sacrifice a lamb, and they would put that, the blood of that lamb on their door, doorpost so that the angel could know this is a, a home of those who worship God. And so the angel passed over them and brought the plague and the judgment on the Egyptians. So this was a time of, of God's deliverance. This is a time of, of God's kindness on his people. It was the means by which they were beginning this process out of Egypt, and so it was a great day to reflect on their God. But it was also then a time when pilgrims would become, would become into Jerusalem. They say that Jerusalem swelled over three times its normal size, probably up to the region about 300,000 people. And just think about this. It was probably kind of like going to the Alameda County Fair on a fireworks night and trying to get to your car. Or, or like going to a Golden State's Warriors playoff game and riding Bart. You know what I'm saying? So you're, you're, you're wall-to-wall people just crowded in Jerusalem. And so finding someone, getting places was a difficult thing. Let me just jump ahead and let you think about it. When, when the disciples say, when Jesus says, hey, you know, go to Jerusalem and, and we're going to celebrate the Passover there. Well, where are we supposed to go? And he says, well, go find the person carrying a jar. But there was a divine orchestration of the events, you see. 
So, so Mark is laying out the setting to help us understand the, the power and the impact of what was going on. And what we find here in this account is Jesus retreating outside Jerusalem in a town of, of Bethany, and he's in the home of Simon the leper. And in that home, we find an unexpected but beautiful example of Christ-centered worship in the context of opposition. It's really an unexpected story, and I think Mark has actually brought this story, at least the portion of it, uh, of the woman into the context here because he's trying to, in a, from a literary perspective, help us see some things. Now, just consider the structure of our text today. You probably caught it as we were reading it. It's, it's what Mark loves to do. It's called a sandwich, right? You have this front first two verses where we have the opposition of those religious leaders. And then we have, at the end, the last two verses, we have the opposition of Judas. So you have opposition from outside. Ultimately, you have opposition from someone who is in the inner circle. But in the midst of all this, you have this beautiful picture of the adoration of one woman. It's seemingly out of nowhere. And so let's just begin by looking at the plot to kill Jesus, the plot to kill Jesus. When it started in chapter 2, and you will see there the story where Jesus heals the paralytic, and the religious leaders there start questioning, and they call what he said blasphemy. And you move to chapter 3, and there they're saying they were wanting to destroy him. It didn't take long for them to get to the place of observation to saying, we need to get rid of this guy. And we see that theme repeated. And in particular, chapter 11 and verse 18, again, the idea there is he needs to be destroyed. And in chapter 12 and verse 12, they're looking to arrest him. This is when Jesus is in the temple. But again, because of the people, they're holding back. And we get here now to chapter 14, and just notice what it says. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. Now, with all the people around, it would be really hard to do that by stealth. It would be actually hard to get him alone anywhere because there are so many people. But they have a plan, and they want to work their plan, and they're going to try and figure out what they can do because they want to put him to death. And they said... Not during the feast, lest there be any uproar from the people. So these religious leaders have this passion for murder, and this passion for murder is only suppressed by their circumstances. The restraint is only due to the fact that so many people are in Jerusalem, and they fear that taking Jesus will result in a revolution. And friends, it's a reminder that Opposition to Christ and his kingdom is relentless. There might seem to be a reprieve, but eventually they will want to do away with any Christian presence at all. Now, we've seen that with the rise of communism. Just, just you know, trying to put out Christianity. It's happening again in China. Right? There's a, a re-revolution going on in China, a, a communistic one. And the, what they're doing is they're, they're coming along and they're stamping out the freedom of Christians, even, to, even to, to, to have churches. 
We've certainly seen that with the rise and the spread of Islam. We've seen it in our own context in a little more subtle ways through the secular humanism and, and political kind of polarizing. And just the change in our culture. Christians are being marginalized. And friends, we shouldn't be surprised because those who are opposed to Christians are ultimately opposed to Christ. That's what he has taught. The mood of the world toward Christianity is changing. The proponents of tolerance will quickly turn their intolerance on the followers of the gospel and be feeling justified for that, which is perversion, right? But that's what they think. But there's a blindness there. It's nothing new, friends. It is simply restrained at the moment. But the dam of hatred and intolerance will come eventually unless the Lord returns. The plan to kill Jesus is still, in a sense, ongoing. And we are the recipients of that malice and that hatred. Well, that's a gloomy picture, isn't it? Thanks, Pastor Rod. I came to church today, and that's really, really helpful. Can you, can you encourage us a little bit? Well, we're going to get there because the sandwich is a, is a reminder of the gloom. But in the midst of that gloom, there is something beautiful going on. And what God wants us to do as we, as we look in this text is to say, yes, there is opposition, but we must trust God's divine plan to, to, to do what God says he's going to do. Jesus, in the midst of opposition, is still heading toward the cross. He hasn't stopped that. He isn't going to stop that. It's not going to be an easy road. There's a journey he has, to, he has to walk, but he is going to get to that cross, and not only to the cross, but ultimately he is going to ascend into heaven by virtue of his resurrection. So that's the plot to kill Jesus. Secondly, there's this plan to anoint Jesus. So now we're in this middle section, and this is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time. Because in the middle of this, this opposition, we have this, this beautiful picture. So Jesus is is dining in Bethany just east of Jerusalem. He's eating a meal in the house of Simon the leper. We really don't know who Simon the leper is. I think we can just kind of assume if there's some freedom to do that, that the reason he is listed as Simon the leper is because he either was a leper and Jesus healed him, and so it's likely that he is inviting Jesus into his home because Jesus was the one who healed him. We don't know. We just know that, that they're there, and, and he's identified with that. So we're not certain about that. But you could probably imagine the conversation that took place around that table. Disciples are there. There's a few others that are there. There's some ladies that are there too. That becomes clear. And quite frankly, a little aside, that a lot of times when you see Jesus interacting with his disciples, there are ladies that are around. They're just not mentioned in a lot of the, the accounts that we have here because they would journey with them. They would provide for them. We see that from other places in Scripture. But you can imagine that the questions or the discussion that was going on. Questions about what happened in the temple, all those tricky questions. Remember what happened there in the temple? Man, Jesus, you really, you really stumped them there. Were you ready for that? You know, were you, were you understanding? Man, what, what do you mean by this? And then, and then questions about the Olivet Discourse, just like all of you had last week when we finished, right? They're sitting there in this upper room talking about what's happening at the destruction of Jerusalem. Are you sure that the temple's going to be destroyed? What do you mean by that? We know the Lord's going to come again, but how is that going to be? And what's, you know? And then questions about Lazarus, because in John's account, Lazarus is present, and Lazarus has been raised from the dead. 
And you imagine the kind of questions you're asking. What is it like to come back to life, Lazarus? What is it like on the other side? Have you thought about a book deal? You know? If you, today, that's what would happen, right? So, I mean, you can just imagine the kind of fellowship and the buzz that was happening because this is Passover and this is a time to remember God's faithfulness to his people and there was also an understanding that God would come during Passover to provide himself that deliverer for the people. John's gospel in telling this story lets us know that it is this that she that Mary is the woman who approaches Jesus and shows her devotion to him. It's the same Mary who sat at his feet as he taught the word. Now, let's think a little bit about this woman's action, Mary's action. I summarized it by saying this is extravagant adoration. Let's read verse 3. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over its head, or his head. Her extravagant affection was now the central focus of the room. Other discussions had been going on, but now all eyes were on her. John's gospel adds, Mary anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. Now, when I was, I remember when I was in college, um, I mean, I, I like to wear perfume, and hopefully, hopefully you do too, um, uh, or cologne or something like that. But, you know, sometimes we can, we can overdo it, right? And I remember in college, it was almost like in the morning, you get up and, you know, everyone's leaving the dorm, and you get into your classroom, and it's just like, it's like you're just like overwhelmed with all the, the smells of these different scents competing with one another. I'm surprised there weren't any chemical reactions going on with all that kind of stuff. Some people, though, I mean, they didn't just like, you know, do like three sprays and that's it, you know, enough to, to just to kind of say, okay, you know what, I'm covered. Um, you know, they were like, you know, and you could smell them like 50 feet away. And you're like, okay, yeah, I know that scent. Didn't matter what you had on. You weren't smelling what you had on. You were smelling what they had on, right? I mean, it's just, just overdone. And what happens when you're with someone like that, and, and you know when you're with someone like that because your eyes begin to water, you start to cough, and it's really, really overbearing. Um, I actually sprayed excessively today, but apparently it didn't affect anyone. At least you haven't told me. Um, I thought maybe I'd bring some physical example to, to the experience this morning, um, but apparently I needed um, what I had, and that was sufficient. Um, but listen, what, what Mary does now is totally, totally, totally unexpected. I mean, there's, there's no preparation for this in, in, in the, as far as the people are concerned. What she had was likely a family heirloom and something extremely important to her and something extremely expensive. In fact, we know that it was worth a lot because the disciples quickly assessed, based on what she was doing, that it was worth about 300 denarii, which would be a year's wage for the a typical day laborer. So I try to put that into to, to Bay Area terms. We're talking about maybe worth about $80,000. Now, you guys ever watch, you know, Antiques Roadshow? You know, and someone walks in with this really dumb-looking thing, and they put it down there, and they're like, 
what is it? I don't know. Gave, you know my parents gave it to me. Oh, well, he says, you know, this was from France, and, you know, it was used in such and such century, and, you know, it's worth, like, you know, $20,000. And like, oh, you know. And, and my wife and I were watching. We're like, sell it, dude. Sell it. <laughs> right? You, you need the money. All right? It's, it, it wasn't worth anything to you. It really isn't worth Sell it. Right? And there's a sense in which what she has here, though, is, is worth a mint for a woman. This was this is something special. This is not some kind of thing that you have lots of them in your room. This is something that was kept through the generations and used very sparingly. And while Jesus is reclining at the dinner table, she approaches him, and she lets down her hair, and she snaps the long, narrow neck of the flask and, and pours a generous portion on his head, anointing him, and then, and then poured the rest of the contents on his feet, humbly and worshipfully wiping her feet, or his feet, um, with her hair. And so, friends, it was, it was all poured out on Jesus. This was a powerful demonstration of her devotion to Christ. And it would take boldness, in particular, as a woman to approach Jesus like this and to give him such a costly and sacrificial affection. And the whole room reeked of her loving devotion to Christ. I mean, just think of the picture here. Just think of what she's, what she's doing in this. Everyone knew what had happened. There was no mistaking it, but not all appreciated it. So let's think now about the disciples' reaction. Now, it wasn't all the disciples. There were some select people who responded to this. But again, we can look at verse 4 and 5 and see what they're saying. And I want you to notice the two key words that Mark uses here to describe their feelings. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. I just, let me just let that settle in here. Their response wasn't simply a raised eyebrow that she was you know, bringing something that was her own personal possession no, it was something far more extensive. Those two words, indignant and scolding. And the idea of indignant here means to, to snort with anger. I mean, they were really angry about this. And this idea of scolding, the idea of rebuking her, this response was scornful humiliation for what she had done. Now, imagine that you decide to do something special for someone because they had helped you out when you were in some difficulty. And so you did it. It was just something, a reflection of your, your appreciation, your love for them. And it was, it was somewhat extravagant. And your friends found out about it, and they just get upset because they think, You're being, your extravagance is foolish. And they say, you went way over the top. You didn't need to do that. And they begin to berate you, call you a fool because you're really being selfish and you're, you're trying to get attention through this thing. And so all these motives now are brought into this. And you're crushed and you're broken because you generally just wanted to let these people know how much you appreciated their help and their support and you wanted to let them know by your affection. Now friends, this is the same kind of attitude that can show up in the context of Christianity, in the context of the church. Let me just give you a few ways this can happen. Some Christian leaders are scolding the modern church for spending so much money on their buildings rather than using their money to feed the poor, homeless, and downtrodden. 
Some believers will look down at your choices for vehicles you own or widescreen TV purchases or vacation trips, thinking those choices are self-centered and that the money could be used for more important and significant things. Some set themselves up as social justice police as they look down their noses because you're not doing enough. And who determines what enough looks like? Now, honestly, friends, in response to that, there are some times when the church needs to take a selfie and look hard at the picture. What is it they're doing? Is there any truth that, that you're mo more focused in the building than you are in building people? Now, as you know, because you're here, we don't own a building. And part of the thinking behind that was, well, first of all, we're starting out and we don't have money. Secondly, we don't want all our resources to go into something tangible that's just a place to meet, especially if we're only gathering like this for once a week. We want the resources to go to paying staff and to spreading uh, the gospel through missionary endeavor, to making sure that the body of Christ is being cared for and ministry is going out. Now, that doesn't mean, though, because our circumstance is different than someone who has a facility that we look down our noses at them, we shouldn't be doing that at all. There may be a time when God provides us with the facility, we have the resources for it, and it all fits within the program. But we gotta be careful that we're not putting other people down when there is freedom in Christ. There's actually a good reason to have a good facility and to be good stewards with what you're using it for. That's perfectly fine for Christian families to have nice cars and large TVs, even take vacations. But the issue is one of balance, proportion, need, personal health. Now, it must be said for those who are scolding that there is a context. Talk about now back in this passage. For those who are scolding Mary for her lavish affection, there is a context because part of the Passover celebration included the giving of gifts to help the poor. And so they're connecting something here. And, and what they saw in Mary's act of worship seemed to them to be a waste. Almost an insult to the poor that she would, she would pour all of this, this valuable nard all out and not even think about them. And so Jesus, who is the recipient of Mary's affection, now responds to both the disciples and Mary. And let's see what he says. I'm calling this a divine commendation. Jesus quickly comes to her defense. <laughs> don't you love that? I mean, you talk about this is, a, this is a man's man. I don't think he stood up and beat his chest. Um, I just think he spoke out to defend this woman who he knew was showering him with genuine affection for who he truly is. And notice what he says. Leave her alone. <laughs> Why do you travel her? Now, we're not told the, the tone and all that kind of stuff, but you can just imagine. Guys, back off. This is what Jesus does when we worship him with a loving passion. He loves to hear the expression of the hearts of those who are worshiping him, and his word is a rebuke to those who mock, who scorn, and think that you are a fool for your joyful expression of adoration to Christ. Are you a defender 
of genuine heartfelt worship or are you one who mocks, even thinks that it's somewhat foolish? Are you afraid to worship Christ regardless of what other people think? Are you willing to abandon yourself to him like she did? What Jesus does next not only defends Mary's action, but it also gives us a window into what true heartfelt worship really looks like. Friends, this is, this is the heart of this text. This is where this text is, is driving us to. Because we'll see that her, her example will be immortalized. Now, From Mary's devotion, Jesus points out five qualities that will encourage us in how we worship. I've, I've called them five characteristics of heartfelt worship and devotion to Christ. Now, if you don't hear anything else during this sermon, hear this. Number one, verse six, it says, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing. (laughs) That should not be taken lightly at all. This is beautiful worship. Jesus is the recipient of her affection, and he calls what she is doing beautiful. We could say it was beautiful because it was motivated by love. Without a genuine love for Christ, our attempts at worship fall short. When we attempt to to worship Christ without love, we're just going through religious ceremonies, we're singing songs with words, we're praying prayers with words, but when the heart isn't there, it's empty. It is the love for Christ that makes our worship pleasing to Christ. Do you love him? One of the things that we should always be doing is to check the motivations of our heart, right? Why are we choosing to live the way that we're living? Why is it that we're listening to and obeying God's word? Why is it, or what is it that's motivating us, or what's behind, um, behind this attitude? Is it the conformity, that, because we want to fit into, let's say, you wanna, you know, you're attending Gateway, and you're, you're saying, well, I'm going to come, and I'm going to sing, and I'm going to pray. Is it because you want to conform here? Is it because you want to please others, or you're trying to impress God? Or is it because of your love for Christ. Can I just say this here? No one is impressed. <laughs> Don't try and impress. Because you and I will always fall short in our worship. We worship sinfully, but we want to worship less sinfully. Not only that, it was motivated by love, but it was also prompted by the Holy Spirit. And I'm just thinking through this this story somewhere. Mary, having sat under the teaching of Jesus, comes to this this understanding, and she stirred in her heart to to do this. I mean, this this was thought. This was planned. This was, this was a movement in her by the Holy Spirit. And she showers him with such a, an extravagant expression of love and devotion. This is what John Calvin suggests um, in his words. He says, she was guided by the breath of the Spirit that in sure confidence she should do this in duty to Christ. I just think about that. One of the commentators I was reading said, 
these few words, and they're, they're very profound, and listen to them. He says, among the tragedies of life are the times when we are moved to do something fine or noble, and we do not do it. Instead, we yield to common sense or the busyness of life. We ignore the impulse to write a letter of appreciation or the prompting to tell someone we love them or the urge to give to a need. As a result, the possibility of a thing of beauty is gone forever. Love, motivated by the Holy Spirit. And this was also not measured by any kind of of practicality. She just gives her worship without regard to whether it's practical or sensible. Now, I'm not up here saying, hey, if God tells you to go to the bank and pull all your money out and give it to the church, then go do it. Well, I just did, I guess so. I mean, but you know, I'm not here saying that. I'm not, I'm not trying to be foolish with this thing. This was something that was motivated by God in her heart for her then to, 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 to act out and to live out. And for you, it might be picking up the phone and saying, I need to have a conversation with someone and say, listen, I was wrong. Please forgive me. Right? It, it might be knowing that someone has a need and you have some money and some resources that, you know what, it's just money. And you're like, this person has a need. I'm going to go take this to this person and give it to them. It doesn't even come through the church. It's just heart to heart from friend to friend, from brother and sister in Christ to brother and sister in Christ. This is stuff that God does. But we, we have those promptings and sometimes we say, yeah. I don't know if I can afford that right now. Have you ever had less money? Did you survive? I mean, see, it's all perspective, isn't it? But if God is moving you, and you've got to be careful, is that God or is it, is, it, you know, is, it, is it a pastor who's motivating you or stirring you up? Or is this truly God at work in your heart to, to give you this opportunity to express your love to someone else? Sometimes we worship God by doing things that are not necessarily practical or sensible. This past month, I shared this with you before, but my wife uh, and I took my son Adam uh, to college down in, in, in Phoenix, um, that horrible, almost close to hell place, uh, Phoenix. It's so hot down there. And um, we stopped at a gas station in Castiac, which is the other side of the grapevine on your way down to L.A. I don't know if you know where that is, but there's a particular gas station we typically go to there, and and, you know, it was, it was, we got up early, and we were tired, and we needed a pit stop. We needed to, to refuel. And, and so I, I gave Adam some money to go get something to eat because then they have, the, have a variety of things. And, um, and, but he didn't, he didn't come back. And I was just like, all right, where's Adam? What's going on with this? He's taking his time, and it doesn't take much to go in and get some food and come out and, you know, to you know, visit the restroom and that kind of stuff. And, and finally, after about 50 minutes, he comes out. And... Uh, he comes up to me and says, Dad, I need some money. Uh, well, what do you mean? I need some more money for food. Well, I already gave you money for food. He says, I know. But there was, a, there was a guy who was waiting outside the gas station who said that he was stuck and that he didn't have a place to live. And, you know, would I be able to help him get some food? So I asked him what he wanted. And I went inside and I bought him some food. And I brought it out to him and gave it to him. Now, you have to understand, in our context, in our home, we're like, don't ever give out money. If people need food, get food. Now, don't get something that can be returned to a grocery store, right? Get food that has to be consumed, right? So provide for them, you know? And, and, and I mean, it's not like it happens all the time, but 
you know, he comes back and he, he tells me that. And, you know, I, I could have responded by saying, Adam, you are a fool. I gave you money so you could get something to eat. Get in the car. You're going without any food. I thought about that, but I didn't. So, <laughs> no, I, I smiled. And you talk about melting a, a father's heart. I smiled and told him that I was proud of his action and his kindness to someone. And he, it was spontaneous. He wasn't expecting it. He was walking in with money that wasn't his. He was walking in with, with money. And he saw someone who had a need. And I realize in those situations, you know, they can be taking you for a ride and stuff like that. But, I mean, how many hamburgers can someone get? Right? If, if you can put money, or, you know, food in their, in their belly and, and help them, then what's wrong with that? So I just smiled, and, and just I was really thankful for his response. But friends, these are the kind of spontaneous things that happened. This was beautiful worship. Secondly, it, was, it is what she's doing, Christ-centered worship. Now let me explain this. This may surprise you as you've read this portion of the text, and, and oftentimes people misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. Notice what it says, verse 7. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. And we've got to be careful that we don't come to a pastor like this and say, yeah, it's the poor are always with us. They don't worry about the poor. The poor are always with us. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not putting down the poor at all. In fact, if you open the page of the New Testament and the Old Testament, but the stick to the New Testament, there are portions of Scripture found there, in particular James 1.27, that say things like this. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. You'll find that the outflow of the gospel is to think of others, is to do things for those who are the downtrodden or hurting and who are suffering. Now, I understand in our California context, that can mean a variety of things, and people take advantage of those things. So with discernment, you're able to help people who are in those situations. But the heart of a Christian is not to be cold to those things. The heart of a Christian is to be sensitive and ready for those things. But here's what Jesus is saying. The poor you will always have with you. In other words, you will always have the opportunity to give to the poor. But you won't always have opportunity to give to me. And so she is commend, he is commending her for her timing and for her discernment and understanding that he is to be the one who is the priority in her life for putting him above anyone else. And what those who are angry with the Lord or with, with her don't un understand or don't realize is that the ointment could have been sold and given to the poor, but it was given to the poor. Jesus is the poorest of the poor. Listen to 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though, uh, that though he was rich, yet for your, your sakes he what? He became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus understands what it is to be poor. And she pours out this offering on him. And for that moment, in that situation, she lifts him above everyone else, and she showers him 
with adoration and affection and worship. It's a beautiful thing, and it's Christ-centered. Third, it's complete worship or wholehearted worship. Verse 8, she has done what she could. <laughs> She's done what she could. He's like, well, what is that? This alabaster jar of nard was all she had. She did what she could. She gave all that she could. And he expects the same from us. Now, let's just imagine that the scene had been a little different. Mary comes into the room where Jesus is reclining at the table, and she opens up the alabaster jar very, very carefully. And um, she just kind of sprinkles a couple of drops on his head and sprinkles a couple of drops on his feet. And it's an act of worship but it's an act of, of measured worship. It's not the kind of worship that is extravagant. It's missing one of the components that makes this particular act of worship so beautiful. It's this expression of love that is sacrificial. It's that her, her worship was total. It was complete. It was wholehearted. She wasn't just tipping Jesus. She was giving him everything she had. Listen to the words of Paul in Romans 12.1. I know, ladies, you're going to get this in a little bit, but Romans 12.1 says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, that means both men and women, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual form of worship. It's not that God just wants us to come and to worship in the context of church. He wants our whole life, our, our thoughts, our actions, our attitudes to come under him. And for those things then to, to flow out as acts of worship as we live our lives here for his glory. He wants us to be all in. And so just consider your devotion to Christ? Is it costing you anything? Is it ever inconvenient for you? Is it, or does it ever deprive you of something that maybe you could have had? Being devoted to Christ means that all that we are, all that we have is his. So that means we want to, to, uh, to, to see worship then in the ways in all the ways that we can. So that means that your marriage is an act of worship. Just think through this. How you treat your spouse, how you talk to each other, how, uh, how you seek to grow one another, how you deal with conflict in that marriage. That's all worship. <laughs> That's all a reflection of Christ being, being your Lord and Master and you wanting to please Him with your actions. Your family, how you do family, is an act of worship. How are you investing in your children? The way you choose to spend your time with them or not spend your time with them. The example that you're setting, it's all a matter of doing what you can with what you have. And all of us have different things. Now, just a little side note here. This whole idea of socialism that's becoming so popular today where everyone needs to be equal, you're not going to open up Scripture and find that. You're going to find people who are rich and those who are poor, and rich and poor gathering together in the context of the church. But the church should know then how to take care of its own. That doesn't mean level the playing field. What it means is loving one another. It's totally different. 
And so Jesus wants you to worship him then as you interact with the body of Christ. When you go to work on that job, that is an act of worship being poured out for him. In your neighborhood, your relationships there, the sports teams you're involved in, the education that you have or that you're getting, just the the fact that you're a citizen of this country or just your friendships, all of them are aspects of worship. He says, this is your sacrifice or your service of worship as you're seeking to be living sacrifices. Not dead sacrifices, living sacrifice. So are you doing what you can with what you have? With the gifts and the skills that that he has given you, with the financial resources you have, with the opportunities that are before you, and doing it all with Christ as master. I mean, you know, if you have resources and you say, God, these are yours, You can be a great vehicle for God to work. Maybe where other people can't, but other people may have other things that they are gifted in because God has bestowed that gift on them. Look at what God has given you. Put it under his care. Live it out as worship for him. Friends, this is your life as worship. It it is where Jesus is everything to you. Your thoughts, your desires, your goals, your relationships, your gifts, your resources, you are all in in your worship of Jesus. It's complete. So not only is it beautiful and Christ-centered and wholehearted, it is also insightful. It's insightful worship. And Jesus now speaks and he says, she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. I just ponder that statement. I mean, it's, it's prophetic. He's still prophesying his death, and he's prophesying something that's going to happen at his death. Mary had been sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to his teaching. She heard that Jesus was heading toward Jerusalem. She heard that he was going to, be, uh, going to suffer, and he was going to be crucified, and he was going to rise the third day. Jesus was just consistently giving that message. But the question is, did she really understand it? Even when the disciples had a hard time understanding it. Was she aware of what was coming? Was she anticipating his death and his burial? We're not told these things, but we see Jesus' words. Jesus commends her actions as anointing him for burial. Years, Years ago, God had announced the coming of his king, a king who would deliver his people, a king who would rule over his kingdom. And certainly he provided human kings, but there was this ultimate king, the king of kings that was coming. He is the promised Messiah, the anointed one. And he entered Jerusalem, and people were yelling, Hosanna! It was the entrance of a king into a city. He will be crucified as king. And I know it was put up there in a mocking way, but it was put up there divinely in providence to declare this is your king. And now, Mary, without realizing it, is anointing Jesus as king. Not a prophet doing this, but a woman who loves her Lord and extravagantly anoints him with genuine affection. And if we look ahead in the story to the ladies who go to the tomb and they're going to the, to the tomb to anoint Jesus' body, they find it gone. 
And the beauty is that Jesus has already been prepared for burial by this woman's act. It's, it's a beautiful thing, isn't it? It's an amazing way that God is connecting what she's doing. John Piper sums it up well. He says, by the providence of God, she was, cho- she was the chosen instrument for the ritual from which the Messiah receives his name, anointed one. Now, our pursuit of knowing and applying God's word fuels our worship with insight about the the character of Christ and the implications of the gospel. Insight pushes us to worship God with substance rather than simply with ritual. She sat at the feet of Jesus. She took in. And we can only connect the dots and say she saw something important that she needed to do based on what she, she understood and the insight that she had. And she worshiped Christ. And we have this great privilege of having God's breathed outward. And when we're in it, it drives us, if we're allowing it to, to worship him. Not just in song, but in living in choices, in thoughts, in diligence, in discipline for for godliness. Then this final one is this, legacy worship. Verse 9, and truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. She is remembered for her, her extravagant and lavish worship. Kent Hughes says, the fragrance was soon dissipated in the scentless air, but the deed smells sweet and blossoms forever. The fact that we're talking about her today, the fact that she is contained in the pages of Scripture is proof that what Jesus said is true. Now, Jewish women considered their hair their glory, and Mary's letting down her hair and drying Jesus' feet with it meant that all her humanity, all her glory was devoted to him in worship. And so we can rightfully say that this woman, Mary, demonstrates her complete devotion to Christ by her beautiful, Christ-centered, complete, and insightful worship. And her devotion is a legacy for all who know and read the word of God to this day. She's an example to all of us. And we would do well to consider Jesus' commendation as a guide to our devotion to him. How is your worship modeling for those around you or those under your influence and care that Jesus is everything to you? Whether you like it or not, you are leaving a legacy. It may not be a lasting legacy, but you are leaving a legacy. Is the way you're living your life for Jesus a legacy for your children and the next generation? What about your grandchildren? What are they going to talk about? Are they going to talk about the things that you had and the, the homes you lived in or the, the great inheritance that they might get, be the recipients of? Or are they going to stand up at your funeral and say, my mother or my grandmother or my grandfather demonstrated to me what it meant to walk with God. What kind of legacy are you going to leave for your subsequent generations to help them to worship the King of Kings? Now, there is 
a worthy comparison that's going on. And I, I, you may not be aware of this story, but at the end of Jesus' encounter in the temple, there is a widow who comes along. And she gives two pennies. She gives all she has. But get this. She gives all she has to a worthless and doomed temple. Mary, on the other hand, gives all she has to the legitimate but seemingly far less impressive temple. But this is a temple that will survive after it has been destroyed. Three days later, this temple will rise again. Nothing is ever wasted when it is invested in this temple. There's a legacy of worship. Now, I just want to encourage you, review the list that is up there. Review these characteristics of worship that flow out of Mary's example. Is your worship beautiful, Christ-centered, wholehearted or complete, insightful? Is it leaving a legacy for others to do the same? Now, friends, that might seem like a somewhat daunting self-evaluation. It's kind of like a lady going to Proverbs 31 and saying, ah, I can't do it. Or us going to, to 1 Corinthians 13, the, you know, where it talks about all these characteristics of love and saying, oh, man, I've got so much to work on, right? I get that. Our worship is always imperfect, but the question is, are we moving in the right direction? Do we want to be moving in that right direction? Maybe what we all need to do is some soul-searching to, to evaluate whether Romans 12.1 is truly the reality of our lives. Are we actively, purposefully, diligently seeking to present ourselves before God in spiritual worship? Mary had no idea that her act would have such a lasting impact. She had no idea that it would be included in God's breathe that word. Her lavish sacrifice still speaks. So we've seen this plot to kill Jesus. We've seen this incredible plan to anoint Jesus and this wonderful picture of what worship looks like. But now we, we end up again with the other end, the other bread in the sandwich. And it's the, the, the purpose now to betray Jesus. We're not going to spend a lot of time here because in the weeks following, uh, we're going to be spending more time on this topic and with this character. But we have Judas, verse 10. And Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray them. And when they had heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. So Judas' story begins here, so to speak. I mean, formally, in, in, the, in the sense that it's included. But I think he's been struggling for a while. We might be tempted to think that the reason Judas joins up with the religious leaders to betray Jesus is due to money. Notice carefully the text. It just tells us that he then went to these religious leaders in order to betray them. As a result of that, they're happy and they're willing to give him money. It doesn't say he went saying, give me money and I'll... So Judas has already been on this road to moving away. So I, I think there's possibility. Certainly, is money part of it? Well, certainly, I think money is part of it. But I don't think that's really the main issue. I think it's the secondary issue. I think that the study of this text, as Mark records, uh, it, it gives us a sense that Judas has given up on Jesus. I just think through this. 
He may have been enamored with Jesus as a revolutionary when, when he first kind of came on the scene and he went out with the disciples in, in ministry and did different kinds of things, but Jesus was not the kind of deliverer that, that he was hoping for. All this talk of suffering and death. All this talk of Jerusalem and the temple being destroyed. I mean, for someone who is a Jew wanting, wanting Israel to, to, to rise up again, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple is not good news. And now this wasteful behavior of Mary, it's simply too much for him. Jesus isn't who he thought he was going to be. Instead of storming the Romans and taking back Jerusalem, Jesus is speaking of dying. He's giving up. This dream is over. And so he goes to the natural enemies and he seeks to turn Jesus over. Friends, it's a reminder for us to worship the Jesus that is revealed to us in the pages of God's word and not to try and worship a Jesus that is crafted by society or a Jesus that we have somehow crafted for ourselves. Is the Jesus you worship the Jesus of the Bible? Let the Bible inform you who he is. That's the whole point of Mark. This is who Jesus is. He is the son of God. He's the one that comes preaching the, king, the gospel of the kingdom. See who he is. See what he's come to do. Respond to him in faith. Friends, it's so easy to, to twist Jesus to fit your mold. Maybe even when you're feeling persecuted because you don't want to be an offense in this world. Friends, the gospel is an offense. Jesus is an offense. And if you're a follower of his, you are an offense. Now, let's finish this up with three concluding thoughts. Number one, I want to talk a little bit about the importance of being called out. Let me explain where I'm, where I'm coming from with this. Because Mark's gospel is a gospel tract. Because it is sharing the story of Jesus, the point of it is to present Jesus as the Son of God, to reveal to him, to, to those readers, that Jesus has come to die as a ransom for many. Another payment here that's far more important than the payment that Judas receives. And it's a call for us to respond. And those who cry out to God for salvation are later called the church. They are called the called out ones. And it's only through the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, when you put your faith and trust and you believe that Jesus Christ came to this earth to die on the cross to pay for your sin, it's only through that that you can be identified as a called out one and that you become part of the church. So as, you, as you're walking through Mark's gospel, how will you respond? There's such an importance for us to be identified as called out ones. Secondly, the importance of being poured out. Mary poured out all she had to anoint Jesus. Jesus, in a few days, will be poured out to pay for sin. I think it's interesting that today we're talking about Mary being poured out. In two weeks, um, because we're going to take a break next week, we're going to come back and we're going to see Jesus being poured out. But in the middle of that, we're going to see a couple, J.D. and Thea, who are being poured out to serve 
others. See, this is all what it means to be a follower of Christ. We see our lives as, as an offering. We see our lives as a fragrance. We see our lives as a, as a reflection of this gospel and placing ourselves in the context of others, whether it be here in Castor Valley or in Austria or Australia. It doesn't matter where. where God has placed you. Be a fragrance. Spray it on. Years ago in the 70s, you guys might remember this. Remember, remember the, the Brute commercial? A brute, and it's like this bottle. Every, every guy wore brute. You know, you, sh- you splash it on, on, you, sh- you just pour it on. That's what God wants us to do with this gospel. He wants us to be showered and, and bathed in the truth of Christ. And that that would smell as a fragrance in this world. So 2 Corinthians 5, 16, and 17 talk about, talking there about a, a fragrance and an aroma in this world. Now, some will love it. But to those who do not believe, it will be a stench. I don't like a stench. It is what it is if you're a follower of Christ. It is the nature of the gospel. It is beautiful to those who are coming. It is a stench to those who are rejecting. So in what way is your life being poured out because of the gospel? This is a question worth pondering, isn't it? Finally. I want you to notice the importance of living, then, living out the gospel. There are two legacies that continue to echo through the generations from this text, aren't there? The legacy of one who in a moment chose to worship Jesus. The legacy of another who in a moment chose to betray Jesus. It is interesting that almost every time that Judas Iscariot is mentioned in the pages of God's word, it says Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed Jesus. Neither of them thought that their choices would have such a lasting impact on the world. What kind of impact are you leaving? Not because you're self-centered, but because you are so compelled by love for Jesus to live your life for his glory. You don't know the many people you might be encouraging. You don't know the ways your example helps others grow or follow your example and look to Christ as their only hope. Live out the gospel. Live it out. Be that fragrance that God's called you to be. Worship him with extravagance that demonstrates you are worth it, Jesus. You are worth it. Lord, help us today to contemplate these words. To be warned about those who are in opposition to you. To be warned even about Judas, who was one of the disciples, who then turns. He doesn't just walk away. But he turns on them. He turns on Jesus. And he betrays the one who had given Judas so much. And yet there's Mary listening, just a helper and a a woman who would come alongside the disciples, Lord, and she loved to listen 
to you teach. And her love for you grew. And Lord, was poured out with this lavish anointing. Help us, Lord, now to see the, the connections in our lives. To take a fresh look at who we are in Christ. To see what you've called us to. And Lord, to live afresh a life that is committed to being a fragrance that has the sweet smell of the gospel radiating from us. Give us wisdom, Lord, to apply these truths to our lives, we ask in your name. Amen.